Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And thanks for joining me today on New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. This is Gabrielle Matthew. I'm the author of the Falcon series out on Amazon and the upcoming Verona Quest series, which starts with Girl of Fire. I'll be talking today with Sam about his upcoming release, The Winter Riddle. You can get that starting November 1st, just in time for winter. And it's a humorous book. To give you an idea about Sam's voice, I'm going to be visiting his website, shooker.co. That's not .com. His name's s-h-o-o-k-e-r.co. This is how he describes his work. Filling up novels with nonsense is hard work. Well, it's work anyway, and someone's got to do it. Well, no, no one's got to do it, but If no one did, then no one would. That's why my work is so important. Well, maybe not so important. As you can tell from that, Sam's not a guy who takes life too seriously, and he doesn't want you to either. But he does tell a funny story. So let me tell you about the winter riddle and my impressions. If you are a moody young woman who likes to wear black, you might well be a witch. Or aspire to be a witch. If you needed a tongue-in-cheek guide on how to behave, you could benefit from picking up the winter riddle. Quaint, and yet somehow very modern, this is the tale of Volga, the winter witch. Volga, like the famous actress Greta Garbo, just wants to be alone in her moldering but cozy hut in the far north of the world. Unfortunately, not only is she royal by blood, her depraved, needy sister is the queen. The queen enjoys teasing and tormenting her introverted relative almost as much as chopping people's heads off or getting stimulated with the royal tickler, who is a person in the employ of the palace, always masked. To add to Volga's woes, her mind is soon shared by her familiar, a red crow, and her old mentor, which leads to some lively discussions inside her head. And that handsome Santa with a secret past as a warrior? Volga tries to push him away, but he doesn't allow her rebuffs to discomfort him. There is a plot to Ella's farce as well. Volga, who has spent years trying to get away from everything and everyone, is chosen by fate to become the warden of the North Pole, and mediate between nature's spirits and the doings of men, with a motley crew of assistants, including the vain and talkative Red Crow, a terrified elf, and a practical scullery maid, she must set things to right. So before Sam comes on the show, I'm going to have him read a bit of his work for you to enjoy, and then he'll be answering my questions. Volga knew very little about Her Majesty's Tickler. No one really knew anything about him, 
and it was kept that way for a very good reason. The White Queen, like all of her ancestors, was a renowned libertine. She was famous for seeking out pointless diversions, often to the point of neglecting dire affairs of state. Lord Chamberlain personally handled much of the business of running the kingdom, and was very good about keeping that fact under wraps. One of the least publicized extents of Lord Chamberlain's power was the fact that he was, by royal decree, the legitimate ruler of the kingdom while Her Majesty was engaged in diversion in the royal ticklarium. The Queen often threatened the lives of anyone within earshot while she was being tickled. It was half the fun, really. Unfortunately, when she gleefully screamed, Off with his head! The order would be carried out by the nearest guard without hesitation. She couldn't, or wouldn't, restrain herself, and they had lost several ticklers before they had arrived at the current solution. The way Volga understood it, no one but the tickler himself knows his identity. He only appears when summoned by the big gong in the ticklarium to perform his appointed duty. During this time, all of the White Queen's power is transferred to Lord Chamberlain, who oversees the diversion. While the Queen is shouting orders to her guards to, pour, to perform acts of murder, torture, or other incivility, Chamberlain politely but firmly countermands said orders. Throughout the rest of the castle, the work proceeds in earnest. In addition to the general feeling of safety from unwarranted threats, all of the Queen's subjects are grateful for the opportunity to get their work done in an uninterrupted fashion. At any other time, they may have been called off to play the part of pony, footstool, or human cannonball in one of Her Majesty's diversions or another. But participating in a bit of fun, required or not, was no excuse for not having finished making the tea, hanging up the washing, waxing the catapult, or any of the other tasks necessary to keep the castle running at optimum efficiency. Work was left unfinished at a servant's peril. Thus it was a positively gleeful half hour or so for the servants, until Chamberlain brought the diversion to a close. The mysterious masked tickler, who was naturally the target of most of Her Majesty's threats, would be given a moment to collect his implements and sprint for the door before power reverted to Her Majesty. Tickler's identity was kept so secret because, according to Her Majesty, he was the most wicked and naughty little knave in her employ, and she would not rest until his head was on a pike at which a new tickler would need to be appointed at once, curse his wicked little hide. She'd once gone so far as to demand that Lord Chamberlain divulge the tickler's identity after what she considered to be a particularly brutish session. To avoid perjuring himself, he'd reluctantly done so. After that, it was Her Majesty's turn at reluctance. On pain of never being tickled again, she signed the royal decree that rested power with Chamberlain in future sessions, as it was the only way a new tickler could be hired. Since then, not even Chamberlain has known who wears the mask. Hey, Sam. Welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, we've been trying to do this via Skype. Hopefully, the gods will be smiling at us. I'm going to start off with kind of a personal question. You seem to know all about surly teenagers and inopportune relatives. 
Is that life experience? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do they recognize themselves when they read? <laughs> I, uh, no. Okay. So, well, it, uh, I'll say that I'll say it's half and half. Uh, I'll say that the uh, inopportune relatives bit I've kind of had to piece together from what I've seen in TVs and movie movies and that sort of thing because uh, my relatives are great, mm-hmm. um, both the ones that I was born with and the ones that I married into. Uh, you know, I've I've got a great family. Uh, being a surly teenager, on the other hand, is something that I intimately know uh, the ins and outs of. I, um, I think I had a goth phase that lasted far longer than most. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, uh, kind of a, uh, much like the lead character of, uh, of the book, Volga, I'm, I'm kind of a roaring introvert. So, uh, that part came to me very easily. That was very easy to write, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the horrible relatives. Yeah. That, uh, that I had to make up. Well, Volga is kind of the core of the book. She's the narrator, the young witch who just wants to be left alone. And actually a recurring theme in your book is the desire to lead one's life according to one's own propensities and tastes rather than assuming a predestined role. We've got Volga. She doesn't want to be queen and then her friend Santa doesn't want to go back to being a warrior. Santa likes to fiddle with things, invent things, hang out with the elves. So during the course of the story, how do your characters come to terms with their conflicts? Well, um, I would say that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very Gilbert and Sullivan kind of thing. It, it all comes down to duty. Uh, if you, uh, yeah, if you're a fan of Gilbert and Sullivan, basically all of their plays were about duty. It was just kind of the central theme of all of them. And, uh, I, I think that kind of applies here. Uh, it's, they have these skills and they would rather not use them. However, the greater good, uh, you know, kind of just compels them into, uh, into using those skills in order to, uh, well, save the world in this case. Um, <laughs> And, you know, kind of kind of the idea is like, you know, that uh, they, they kind of keep coming back to it and saying, OK, fine, I'll do just this one thing, but then I'm out. And that's that. So, um, yeah, I'd say I'd say that it's duty. And then they're 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 really hoping that once they're once they've finished with this, then they get to, you know, then Bulga gets to go back to her hut, which Red Crow refers to as a hovel and uh and that you know, and that'll just be it. Although she will have to start a new pot of stew. Her stew, Volga stew, has been <laughs> evolving over the years. <laughs> yeah, stew stew is a complex animal, and I'm not using that word lightly. <laughs> so, just to pop a question on you: uh, so you were a sulky teenager, and then did, was writing your calling to save the world? I, oh gosh! If anything that I ever write saves the world, that would be that would just be weird. I uh, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that definitely would. I uh, so I, I've I've always wanted to write, and over the course of the you know several decades before uh, I actually did get a couple of books off the ground, I I must have started and failed to finish. Uh, easily a dozen novels, if not several dozen. Um, it's 
I, I, I've just always wanted to do it and I've just never, I don't know, quite had whatever it was, the, the, the drive or the inspiration or whatever else to, to actually, you know, land one to get all the way through that final chapter and then go forth and edit it and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it just kind of took me some time and some life experience to, to get on, to get all the way through it. And, uh, I think, you know, growing out of my sulky teenager phase, which lasted probably well into my thirties, <laughs> um, was, was part of that. And I, I really like to write, I especially like to write humorous fiction because writers have this really unique ability to put something into the world. Um, and maybe it's not unique, I mean, you know, but architects can put buildings into the world good for them. Uh, I don't have that sort of patience. Um, what I wanted to put into the world is, you know, if, if I was going to put anything into the world, I guess it would be laughter and joy. And so, you know, that's what I'm doing. And you'd have to ask Stephen King what it is that he wants to put into the world because (laughs) frankly, his stuff is just creepy. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that when I read your book, just to get off topic a little bit from the questions, uh, I Mm -hmm. like science science fiction and fantasy and i also like watching it on tv after i'm brain dead from trying to edit my own work and trying to decide how long should i make a chapter is it okay to only have three page chapters but when we're watching it it is just appallingly depressing a lot of times not only the dystopian futuristic books But just a lot of what's out there is so grim and so mean-spirited. I want to tell all the listeners out there that, you know, it's fantasy does not have to be grim. Fantasy does not have to be dark. Fantasy does not have to describe torture. And if you're in a mood for something a little lighthearted that won't get your head in gloom, then this is a good book to hang out with. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I uh, yeah I, I I watch and read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy as well. I I've, I've recently been kind of reading a lot of kind of the very early science fiction thanks mm-hmm. to a book club that I'm a part of, uh, and I, I read a little bit of Isaac Asimov, you know, some stuff from like the 1950s and stuff like that. And it's it's funny how all of that was just world building at the time and they were just you know everybody was i i guess the writers and readers alike back then were just super fascinated with you know oh what are the possibilities of the future when you know by the 1970s we'll all have flying cars and that sort of thing and it totally came to pass i worked yeah it worked out for me it's great um but world building now is just sort of something that sci-fi and fantasy authors kind of just do uh, in the course of writing their stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I personally think that it's, it's better now. And of course I would, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, you know, I, I've still got to give a lot of credit to, uh, you know, to the people who sort of founded the genre uh, like Isaac Asimov and, you know, you know, kind of give a little bit of homage to what they did. But from there, it definitely did splinter out into a bunch of really weird and sometimes very dark uh, genres. You know, you, there's there's the entire grim dark uh, subgenre of uh, speculative fiction now, um, which 
I like reading that stuff, but I don't think I could ever bring myself to write it. I, uh, I don't think I, I want to be in my head with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. When, you know, when I, when I walk away from my keyboard after I've written, you know, a few thousand words, you know, chapter or whatever, uh, I usually am giggling about, you know, whatever it was that I, that I said that I thought was just, Oh, so very clever. And half of it, I'll come back to it in edits and go, oh, that wasn't as clever as I thought it was and have to scrap it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> humor, is, humor is also a moving target. It's, it's hard to hit sometimes, and that's why uh, I have to do a lot of drafts um, in order to get it just right. Right. One wants to be arch, but not overly arch. <laughs> yeah. So you've got different characters in your book. Uh, back a little bit to world building, you've got some stock characters from fantasy, uh, druid, wizard, and there's also a necromancer who's displaced a druid, wizard. Uh, they're both court magicians to different courts. And uh, I was just wondering if you could reflect on the differences and the likenesses between them. Sure. Okay. So, um, Osgrave, the Druid, uh, was the, the court wizard at one point. Um, and the, uh, the king and queen at the time, this was Volga's parents. Uh, they wouldn't know one type of magic from another, if they were standing next to each other and explaining the differences to the pair of them, they were two of the biggest libertines who ever lived. Uh, and so it was just sort of a, Oh, what you do magic. Okay. Be the court wizard. I, we have drinking to do. Um, and so he, you know, he was, uh, I, I kind of wrote him as sort of a classical druid. He, you know, very in tune with nature and all of that sort of thing. And he just kind of wanted to, you know, maintain all the balances with, you know, between, the. Uh, the, the world of humans and the natural world, you know, very into that and very into just kind of keeping everything peaceful and very good. Um, and then, you know, when, when he was displaced, he kind of ran off and became a tree, which yes. to me just sounded like a very druidic thing to do. Uh, and he was displaced by Gasterly, who is this uh, necromancer who's uh, obsessed with the dead and, you know, magic having to do with the dead. And, you know, he, I'm sure he'd love to, you know, raise an army of skeletons to take over the world and that sort of thing. You know, the, the sort of thing that you catch in, uh, in Grimdark. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, um, I'll give, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you the, the inside scoop. Uh, I got all the way through the first draft of the winter riddle without Gasterly, and I was reading back through it. And I thought, oh, my God, I didn't put a villain in this story. Exactly. So I kind of did. The, the, the White Queen was supposed to be the villain. But again, she was she was very much a libertine and very just sort of, you know, let me cake. And, you know, she was kind of a de facto villain, but she wasn't really smart or engaged enough to be like a real, you know, I, I, I'm going to be a villain, do evil, be nasty kind of person. So I kind of had to go back and write Gasterly in. And um, luckily that was not terribly difficult. You know, I just kind of wedged some chapters in the middle, rewrote the, you know, everything Mm -hmm. around them to kind of match up. And, uh, and there it was, but, uh, but it was interesting because then I had the, 
whole story laid out in front of me and I thought, okay, what sort of a villain would, uh, would, would bother Volga the most. And I got to, you know, kind of knowing how the rest of the story was going to turn out, uh, just kind of go back and insert him in. So it was kind of a weird, I was, I was so worried that, uh, it was going to come off as like, what this guy just feels tacked on, but you know, I, I managed to kind of weave enough threads around him that it, uh, you know, turned him in, into kind of a natural part of the story. Yeah, it didn't feel tacked uh, on to me at all, probably because there are references to the uh, magical tower right in the beginning of the novel where he lives. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and yeah, I, I put a lot of his stuff up front. Um, but, uh, but back to your question, I would say that the differences between them are they, uh, Osgrey and Gasterly could not be more different. You know, uh, Osgrey was very concerned with life and peace and the balance and, uh, Gasterly is very concerned with, you know, death and power and the acquisition of power, which, you know, again, is something that Osgrey really wouldn't have cared anything about. And since Volga was kind of a quasi pupil, of Osgri, uh, you know, she was, she was a little bit more in his camp, only, you know, a bit more surly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> only with dark clothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we have kind of another villain in your book. I mean, he's in the background a lot, but he has to do with the plot and part of the plot revolves around the mystery of warm air currents in the North Pole that threatened to destabilize the icy realm where the frost giants are kept. And uh, as part of the work that Volga is forced into, she doesn't really want to do it, uh, in keeping the nature spirits happy and the land safe, she goes to that spirit or the causative entity and tries to get this problem with the warm air fixed. And now I don't want to give away who does this, but isn't he kind <laughs> sure. of a climate denier? <laughs> I so I try to avert. I, I try, uh, avert. I can totally talk today. Uh, I try to avoid being overtly political uh, in any of the things that I write. However, uh, I I am you know of course a very big believer in man-made climate change and that. You know, I, I believe that's an existential threat. Um, I didn't really go out intending to uh, to believe it or not uh, to uh, to make this an allegory for that. Um, but it, it did kind of wind up in that place, uh, despite my not trying at all to not uh, make it end up there. Yeah, so, I think I hunted uh, that theme out. <laughs> I sniffed it out. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very astute of you. Very, very clever. Um, I, I think I don't know that I would necessarily refer to them to uh, to that entity as a uh, as a climate denier. I think if anything, if if we're gonna if we're gonna draw that connection, make that allegory, I would think that he's sort of. I, I would actually just kind of consider him the everyman, just the, the, uh, the, okay, I've given away the gender finest to him. Um, he's just sort of, you know, the guy who gets up and gets into his car every day and drives to work and, you know, enjoys, you know, turning on the air conditioner when he comes home and, you know, is 
contributing to the problem, but not because he's thinking, oh, I want to contribute to this problem. He's just, he's just going along doing his thing. You know, it's kind of a, uh, it, it's no spoiler. It kind of comes along pretty early, uh, that he's, that it's, it's, it's just kind of related to a prank. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's, you know, the, the, the fact that, uh, that the <laughs> global warming is sort of the, uh, the side effect of, uh, of what he does <laughs> is it was never intentional. He just sort it just sort of happened. That's and great. so, well, and so then you, you know, if you kind of bring Volga into it, her job is, you know, it's like, okay, it was unintentional, but it's also causing all these other problems and, you know, the frost giants and everything's going to be horrible. So, um, let's fix it, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of how we got here, let's stop this insanity and get it fixed. So I, I, I would say that, you know, I, maybe Volga is Obama. Is that a little <laughs> bit too broad reaching? Or she's Al Gore. I, uh, <laughs> Al Gore in a dress yeah, or Al Gore now. Or, Probably. Or, or the European uh, Union. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe she's channeling Al Gore. She's a witch after all. <laughs> Yeah. No, legit, guys, whoever's sure. listening, she she's really not at all like Al Gore. She likes to stay out of the spotlight, but you know, there you are. The nature spirits yeah. are upset and <laughs> things are melting. She's she's gotta do something and step up. Right, yeah. And so we also have a little bit of a Christian tradition and this next question is kind of tongue in cheek because uh Sam and I have both lived in Texas, where uh, a lot of times the content of books, at least of school books, is contentious, where certain elements of the culture believe certain things should be kept out of school books and not included. So this novel does have a bit of a Christian tradition, and it explains how one of the important aspects of Christmas came to be. But it also, my my shock it has a sympathetic witch and a kindly druid should those kind of things be in the same book i mean we uh we 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 may need to sing uh the the state national anthem to uh an apology for uh the rest of this conversation <laughs> um so the so if 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 you look at a lot of Christmas tradition, uh, you'll see that there is actually like a lot of, uh, you know, druidic tradition in there. Mm-hmm. Christmas trees, for example, um, pine trees are not as prevalent in the Middle East where a lot of Christian tradition comes from. Uh, so I would say that, you know, if, uh, if Christians didn't want Druidic tradition in Christmas, then maybe they shouldn't have adopted so much of it in order to <laughs> kind of, you know, get, uh, you know, everybody in Britain on board That's uh, right. with their religion. You'd have uh, to go you know, camp out in the desert for Christmas. That yeah, wouldn't be fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, it, I, again, you know, I've, I, I avoid, uh, overtly politicizing my work. I, I'd really like for everybody to be able to you know, enjoy my books, uh, regardless of my whiny crybaby opinions. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, the, uh, the traditions of any person, you know, whatever holiday they, uh, celebrate, um, 
you know, I, I, I really, I, I like to honor all traditions and I think that, uh, anybody can kind of, I think I would say that anybody with a sense of humor can enjoy this book. I don't go out of my way to offend any tradition. I don't go out of my way to, you know, support any, um, way of life or, you know, force any agenda, climate change included, uh, that we've talked about that one already, but, um, I also kind of think that really one of the keys to writing humorously is juxtaposition. So uh, a surly Santa Claus, uh, a nice witch who, you know, doesn't, you know, cackle and try to eat babies and things like that. Um, That's, those are kind of the roots of humor. And so if you're, if you're not into that sort of thing, then maybe give my book a miss. (laughs) But it is a very nice book and it really would be appropriate for all different kinds of ages. There's, no cursing and no very little violence or just implied violence. And so it is uh, a good book for a number of different ages and traditions, I think. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I tried to, I tried very hard to keep, uh, yeah, the foul language to a minimum. Um, there's quite a bit of drinking, but there are also quite, you know, quite a bit of uh, hangovers involved mm-hmm. as well. So <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm not glorifying uh, drinking alcohol, but we, but it, uh, I do talk about it quite a bit. Well, and Santa and Volga are their friends, but you know, there's not even there's not even anything overtly sexual about their friendship i was just wondering they they seem to get along well is there a romantic future for the witch and santa well everybody knows that there is a mrs claus uh-huh. i nope nobody really knows much about her i i i will definitely say so i i i never intended for this book to be a series though you know time will tell and um you know, we don't, we don't know a lot about Mrs. Claus. So, you know, certainly that's the, it's, it's not, uh, entirely outside the realm of possibility. <laughs> um, I, so what, you know, so when they, when they first encounter each other in the book, they're, they're not friends, they're neighbors and they're actually kind of neighbors at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they do become friends by the end of it. And, um, well, I don't want to give anything else away. I, I, everything yeah. that I'm thinking of saying right now is spoiler territory. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, there, there is no romance between them in the book. Uh, but, uh, oh gosh, now you got my wheels turning. So I'm going to have to make some notes. <laughs> well, especially if we don't know much about Mrs. Claus, that would be perfect for Volga because she really does like to maintain a air of mystery about herself. Right. And I, uh, and Mrs. Claus is not mentioned in the book. And so, uh, I, now if this were, if this were the 1950s, I could probably say, oh yeah, she was there the whole time. She was just in the kitchen, <laughs> but I, you we know, don't I, do that. I have, no, I really don't. I have a very, uh, a very, um, fond affinity for strong female characters. Um, my, uh, my other novel that's on shelves right now, Peril in the Old Country, is full of strong female characters, and uh, they're they're super fun to write. And I I like to dabble in mm-hmm. some gender politics a little bit, 
but um you know overall i don't i i like to mostly try to treat uh female characters and male characters as equals because i think that that's the way that everything should be not only that but you know as a white man myself it I, I, it feels a little bit disingenuous to speak to the challenges that, you know, that women and minorities face just because I, I don't know them as well. You know, that's, you know, my, my privilege allows for that. So, um, so yeah, strong female characters, because why shouldn't they be? <laughs> that sounds good. So a little bit about the topic of curse words, which you didn't include in your book. I understand that you know quite a few special ones from your website, and I was wondering <laughs> if you learned any during your time as a whiskey taster in the Dublin Jameson Distillery. <laughs> now, you don't um, have to say yeah. them on air, but uh, unless sure, they're sure. just very mild <laughs> curse words, but the Irish do have a yeah. gift with language. They do, and they use it to speak English, so it's a talent <laughs> very wasted. Um, I I will say that uh, so the the official whiskey taster thing. I, uh, I I took a tour of the Jameson Distillery, and I was selected out of my tour group to uh, do a whiskey tasting. I tasted three whiskeys. I picked out which one was the Jamesons, and it was it was pretty obvious because they put it next to uh, a Scotch that I'm pretty fond of, and. Uh, um, uh, Jack Daniels, which, you know, I'm an American, so I know what that tastes like. <laughs> um, and, and so I got a certificate and it was great. And it's, it's, it's mounted on my wall now, uh, right above my college degree. Oh, oh, okay. Um, above the college because, degree even. <laughs> well, you know, in, in, important things are important. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't recall any, any, uh, swear words that I picked up uh, in Ireland. Uh, I think the funniest word that I picked up over there was crack and it's spelled <laughs> C R A I C. And it, it just means, uh, it means, you know, kind of a, a party, a good time. And, um, my, my then girlfriend, now wife and I were in a pub and, uh, these guys started talking to us and we were having a good time and they wanted to keep it going. So they said, Hey, let's go have a crack. <laughs> and You're we, wondering. we thought they were, we thought they were talking about like the cocaine derivatives. And uh -huh. so we were like, yeah, no, thanks. Uh, you, you, you go crack yourselves up. I think we're going to pass on that. And they, you know, laughed and explained to us what it was. So, uh, I think that was my, uh, my one harrowing brush with, um, with, with Irish slang. Yeah. You probably came across as blockers. Those are people outside of Dublin. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, real, I'm very real, sure that I came across real that. Blokes. He's a real bogger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were also um, we were also kind of cajoled off of a, a a bus at the wrong stop by some uh, by some elderly Dubliners, which I'm I'm pretty sure they constituted a gang, and I'm pretty sure that they were messing with us, but. I, it could have been good intentions. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe they were pranking you. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but just uh, tell us what you're working on now. So right now, so uh, Peril in the Old Country is the first 
book of a three book series called Terribly Serious Darkness. And I'm just now finishing up all of my edits to the second book. Uh, I haven't released the uh, the title yet. We're, we're going to do a, a cover reveal pretty soon. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. send you an email so, uh, yeah. so you know when that happens. Uh, but that is going to come out. That should be on shelves in mid-2019. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm also really looking forward to getting onto the third part of the uh, the series because you know I already know how it's going to end uh, but you know how just how to get from the end of the second book to the end of the third book is still a little bit of a mystery to me so uh, looking forward to working on that and you know finishing the story well good luck on that thanks for joining me today thanks thanks for having me this was a lot of fun we've been talking to Sam Hooker about his novel The Winter Riddle you can visit Sam's website at shooker.ca or follow him on Twitter at Sam Hooker is his handle and his website is shooker.co not shooker.com I'm the author of the historical fantasy falcon series which starts with the falcon flies alone I blog about travel in my books at my website gabriellematthew.com You can also follow me on Twitter to find out about upcoming podcasts. My handle is at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. And I'll be having Anthony Ryan as my guest next, so I hope you'll join me then. Thanks and goodbye.